I was a first responder. I had been in Quantico when the planes hit and I got in my car and I drove up to this, back up to the city. When I was undercover, I lived across the street from the Trade Center. My office was in the Trade Center. Trading floor was in the Trade Center. And my father's office had been there, but he had retired. So I spent five days there on the pile digging. Our filter mask got clogged within a couple hours with all the dust and debris, and they just were worthless. So we didn't have anything to use after that. And we were breathing in a lot of stuff. There was stuff, just asbestos and fuel and plastics and everything you can imagine just burning, burning and burning for days. And, you know, we were trying to save people. So we, you know, we kept going. But 2004, I was diagnosed with lymphoma and uh, started chemo right away because I was stage four. And then I, um, I didn't respond to the chemo. So they had to do a bone marrow transplant. Structured. Today, I'm really excited. We have Jim Clemente. As a shortcut for describing him, I'd say he's probably the busiest person in Hollywood right now. <laughs> Former New York City prosecutor, retired FBI supervisory agent and profiler, which I know they worked a lot of hours. Did you work more hours then or do you work more now, Jim? Well, it depends. Uh, what happened in the FBI, there were a number of times, well, on a regular basis, especially when I was a profiler, when I worked crimes against children and child abductions, that I would literally fly around the country to respond to abductions. And when you did that, there was no such thing as a clock. I mean, we worked sometimes 36 hours, 72 hours, just whatever you needed to do uh, until you were completely exhausted. So uh, I worked a lot then, but kind of it was more sporadic, I guess. Uh, now I kind of I'm into a lot of things. I'm doing a lot of different things at once. And, uh, you know, sometimes it's a bit overwhelming. I can imagine. Now, you mentioned flying around the country. So you did a lot of on-scene work then? You didn't just run for a command center in uh, Quantico? That's correct. It was a responsive squad. I was on the FBI's child abduction rapid deployment team. So what we did was we had regional teams in five different areas of the country so that they could respond to any child abduction within two hours on the ground. And mm-hmm. what we would do is we'd have one or two FBI profilers who'd be who'd get on a plane and fly there as well. But since we were on the East Coast, it sometimes took us a lot longer. So another set of profilers would be on the phone with the team so that they could get involved right away. Because as you may have heard of the kids who were abducted and killed, 44% are killed within the first hour. within the first three hours and 99% within the first 24 hours. So it's not a kind of thing where you can just sit back and wait or fly across country and not be involved right away. So we'd have people involved right away. And then once the team that was flying got onto the ground, the team from Quantico would then update them brief them on all the information, and they would hit the ground running. So that's what we did. Hopefully there's a lot of false alarms too in that um, situation. Uh, No, not really. Uh, They vet the cases pretty well. I mean, in the cases that are reported by NICMIC, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, yes, there are many, many, many false alarms. They report over 800,000 missing kids a year. Uh, The fact is that of those, only about two to 3,000 are short-term abductions and about 160 to 200 are actually long-term non-familial abduction. So, those are the ones we responded to. I think you've talked about that before, that a lot of the cases are not, I don't know, not necessarily what we see on TV. A lot of them are like an angry parent who maybe doesn't agree with the custody arrangement and then takes the kid. Well, yeah, we didn't work those cases at all. We didn't do custodial um, issue uh, abductions. What we did was we only only worked uh, abductions where it was somebody who did not have lawful custody or did not share custody. Um, So we would call them stranger abductions or non-familial abductions. Sometimes it's not actually a stranger, though. Sometimes it's an acquaintance. So those are 
they can also be very dangerous cases. Um, but when I when I retired, um, I you know I began working full time on Criminal Minds and uh, as a writer producer, and uh, that is a, a pretty significant uh, amount of time that you put into that. <laughs> sure, it's a major network television program. Uh, we've been fortunate enough to start our 15th season now, which will be the final season of Criminal Minds. Oh, wow. Uh, it's really good that they're giving us the advance notice so we can kind of wrap up the stories and and yeah. launch our characters into the future. And I tell you, a few years ago, maybe four or five years ago, I got myself a whiteboard for Christmas. And I, you know, wanted to just sort of organize what I'm doing because I, I found myself constantly putting out fires. I just had my hands in a lot of different things. And so I started writing down just as I was answering emails, I started writing down the different projects that I was working on. And, mm-hmm. and when it got to, cause I used to tell people I have like at least 12 jobs and uh, a lot of people made J- Jamaican jokes uh, from the old Saturday <laughs> Night Live skits, but I just, I I definitely knew I was doing a lot of things and I kind of estimated it as 12. But then as I was making my way through my emails, which I get about 400 a day, wow. I would write down what the different project was that I was working on. And I got up to 26 when I realized, wow, this is this is a lot. And then I realized, well, those are all sort of in the media area. But I didn't add the fact that I was managing an artist who was a songwriter, singer, wow. and podcasts. I was I was podcasting uh, and hosting, and a bunch of other projects that weren't really in the in the TV or or movie uh, genres. So anyway, in the end, it, it was about thirty seven different projects that I was working on, and and that really told me. I need to get some, um, some additional help. So I started, I hired, I hired a couple people and kept going. And now we have XG productions where we have myself, my brother, Tim, who's also a former FBI, my brother, Peter, who's a former rock star, who's turned into a sort of an internet guru and a business mogul. And he's runs our operations and our marketing. And we bought in a, legal and business affairs guy. And then a bunch of people like Francie Hakes, who's a former assistant United States attorney and Bobby Chacon, who's a former FBI agent, ran the dive team for the FBI, started it. In fact, um, Hmm. Justin Wiley, who's a writing partner of mine, uh, Jamie Bruce, who's, uh, who heads up our productions, Pete McDonald, who heads up our development and Maureen O'Connell, who's also recently retired from the FBI. So, you know, we have a whole bunch of people who are working full time to make the best television and podcasts and audiobooks and TV series and scripted, non-scripted features, you know, every platform you could possibly imagine in the law enforcement and military space. Cool. Kind of a 365 degree view, eyes, ears, written everything. Yeah. Well, what we wanted to do is bring to those kinds of productions authenticity because we would actually see, and you know, I've been in the writer's room now, this is the 15th season in Criminal Minds. And I've also consulted and worked on a number of other pilots and other series. And, and in general, um, writers who come up they're they're incredibly talented but their experience, their actual life experience in the field that they're writing about really in general doesn't exist. So they typically have a tech advisor who helps them with details. And um, I found and, and my brother found that, well, actually writing about the thing that you did for a living, about your profession, uh, you just have so much more to draw from. And we wanted to, instead of rehashing things that have been seen in other shows or other movies or other books, we want to write about what, what really happens in the real world. And I think that the result of that is you actually get to educate 
the public while they're being entertained. And that's a really important aspect for us. So our company, our motto is basically authenticity. And our goal is to be as authentic. And instead of calling it true crime, which has has sort of a, a broad based interpretation, we call it real crime, real crime, real experts, real stories. Hmm. So we're not just telling stories out of our heads. We're telling people what has really happened. And of course, you know, you fictionalize it in, to a certain degree. Um, mm-hmm. I also blend stories so that I'm not telling the facts of a particular case. You know, I am telling stories from a number of cases so that the the actual, you know, learning points are actually true, but they may be pieces of different cases blended together so that I'm not putting families or survivors through sort of the exact details of the case that that they suffered through. Plus, it prob- you probably have to exaggerate or mold things together to make more exciting. I, I know you've talked about the bureaucracy as being a major part, and I'm guessing the show may not do well if it's a bureaucracy 101 hour. Yeah, I think you're probably right. Um, so certain aspects of it we do brush over, but other aspects, I mean, we, we kind of toned down some of the violence for network mm. TV. We tone down some of the horrific things that happen in the real world because it's it's very 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 disturbing. Uh, that's the one probably the worst side effect of having worked this stuff for for about thirty years. You you definitely see the worst things that human beings do to one another, and that's not really encouraging. But the fact that there are in this country five hundred thousand law enforcement officers whose lives are dedicated to protecting the public, that is encouraging. A couple of questions. One, you had mentioned about being as true to, um, or being as authentic as possible. Do you also have to deliberately be inauthentic? And as an example, I was a former military. And one of the things I remembered is that you can't ever display a class A uniform in the military with the ribbons in correct order. You have to deliberately mess up the uh, order of the ribbons, et cetera, or it would be considered stealing honor. Mm. Do you have things like that? Well, um, not that in particular. I do think that on most shows, they do require you to change the FBI seal, for example, to a certain degree. Um, And also, uh, when I write my episodes, I make sure that if I'm talking about creating a bomb or creating poison or doing some mechanism that could hurt or kill people, I always alter it so that it is not, I'm not telling the details of how you actually do that. (laughs) So in that way, I definitely don't maintain authenticity. I'm not trying to teach people how to do bad things. But a lot of people ask me, well, haven't you, aren't you teaching people how to commit these horrific crimes? And I I say, no, Uh, if you watch the different series that were under the CSI umbrella, you'll see that they go into great detail about collecting forensic evidence and what kind of forensic evidence can be left behind and so on and so forth. That had two very negative effects. One is that, yes, criminals can see that and then they learn how to avoid leaving that kind of evidence behind. In addition, they did it with all these lights and lasers and high definition video and slow motion cameras. And juries saw that people that, you know, would make up jury members across this country saw those shows and said, wow, I can't wait to be a juror and see all this great stuff. Mm -hmm. And when they get to the jury box and they're in the middle of a trial and actual really good legitimate evidence is presented to them because it doesn't have all the bells and whistles, because the cops don't look like, you know, GQ models and they come in there and they're just regular people. They were dismissing cases that were extremely legitimate. They call it the CSI effect. And that's negative. On the other hand, with criminal minds, the behavior that we talk about is not something that you just pick up. You can't watch a TV show and say, oh, you know what? Next week, I think I'm going to try, I don't know, (laughs) eating someone's leg. You know, that's just not something that you pick up from a TV. Um, The behavior that we talk about is very intrinsic to each of the offenders. Their signatures are part and parcel of who they are. And this kind of behavior is not learned. It expresses their thoughts and needs and desires. For example, an offender picks a particular victim at a particular time, in a particular place, in a particular manner for a particular purpose. 
And those choices that they make are intrinsic to them. It's what they want to accomplish. It's not, it doesn't have anything to do with what they saw on TV. Again, you can't change what you're sexually attracted to by seeing something on TV. You can't change the fact that you're a sexual sadist or the fact that you have, that you're psychotic or the fact that you have delusions or the fact that you are a psychopath. Those things don't come from TV. They come from the person. And do you work with the talent at all to, um, show them perhaps, you know, like real interviews with the people they're representing or people similar to who they represent and to help them express it in a better manner? Sure. Well, obviously them talking to me is, is an example of that. Um, and I also bring in a bunch of my colleagues and you're talking about the, I'm, I'm talking about the, the the team you know the people who play the fbi profilers they talk right. to me they talk to other fbi profilers that are brought in or other fbi agents and so forth um and for example my friend emily vatcher was the sort of prototype for emily prentice and hmm. they they've become really good friends they talk all the time and um but when you're talking about the bad guys um, I don't bring in criminals to teach. The, <laughs> You're not going to bring them out. I no, just didn't know if, um, like they, if they saw interviews, things like that, because I was yes. thinking that the show could possibly help people to identify particular peculiar behavior. Absolutely. And, and that's why we try to be very accurate in terms of psychology and psychopathology. Uh, when we describe the offenders, um, how they sort of, sort of became who they are. And I always say it's a complicated mix of biopsycho and social um, that makes somebody, it's the perfect storm that makes somebody a serial killer. And I describe it as the genetics loads the gun. The personality and psychology aims it and your experiences pull the trigger. So if you don't have all three of those things, then you won't have a serial killer. But the fact is that People who are serial killers certainly have the genetic potentiality, not predisposition. It doesn't mean they're going to do it. Right. But as they grow up, they make millions of little decisions in the privacy of their own brain where they either accept the dark side or reject it. And if they keep accepting it, they keep encouraging it, they keep reinforcing it, eventually they're going to be the, the wall that's normally involved in in a human's brain that they have to get over to offend becomes lower and lower and lower every time they make one of those decisions. So it becomes easier and easier for them over time. Yeah. There's a perfect example of the flip side of that. Um, A former guest of the show, um, Dr. James Fallon, I believe he was also on criminal minds. Yes. Good friend of mine. He's not killing anybody. (laughs) No. Well, he's uh, genetically that we know of, <laughs> or he's very clever. Good point. Yeah, he's been on. He's a very glib, fun individual, and absolutely, he's so smart, like super brain, just super brain, amazing precise. So, I think it's great that you mentioned that you have to have all the ingredients to actually make the combustible cocktail, so to speak. Yeah, there you go. Now, reaching back and speaking of combustion. You started out as a chemistry major. I did. I did. Uh, I got my degree in chemistry. I wasn't sure when I started college whether I was going to be a chemistry or physics major. So I majored in physical science um, and then really was disappointed with the head of the physics department at Fordham where I went. Um, He was very much into his research and not so much into teaching. And he just made it, well, first day of class. He handed out paper and said, okay, I'm going to give you a quiz. So he asked us 10 questions or whatever. And then he said, you know, you're still kind of in the summer that at that point, right? But he said, all right. And he graded them and he gave them back. And he said, all right, anybody who got seven or less on this, I consider that failure. So I want to see you in my office. And he said, <laughs> I, wow. plan, I plan to fail half of this class. There were only 31 of us in the class. Oh, that's charming. No, there are 30 There are thirty of us in the class. And he said, I plan to fail half of you. So 
you know, go through the thing. And he just said, you should quit. You should just quit. Cause I got a seven on it. And I was like, mm. uh, no, uh, I know this stuff. It's just, come on, this is a stupid quiz. Anyway, that's how he was. And in, in the end, by the end of the year, 11 of us survived the class. So wow, he was the head of the physics department. And so that's somebody I'd have to see over and over again. And that just really turned me off. However, Dr. Kalustian, who was my organic chemistry professor, was such a great guy and so inspirational. And he eventually gave me a lab to do research in, and I really loved it. So I just said, well, I'm going to major in chemistry. But by the time I got to my senior year, well, the end of my junior year, I was like, I had already done a year of research. I was in the lab a lot. I spent most of my time in there. And I just said, you know, this is going to be hard to do this for 20 years, just to get a job and be in a lab and do all this stuff. I'm like, I just don't know. I just, I really feel like I want to work with people, not chemicals. And so I actually went down to my father's office, which was on the 93rd floor of the World Trade Center. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I, uh, I told him, uh, you know, I'm really kind of disillusioned. I, didn't, I don't know what I want to do. And he said, well, you should read some of my cases. He was a lawyer and he did mm -hmm. products, products liability and medical malpractice. And I was like, you know, I'm not that great at reading because I had had dyslexia and it was really hard for me to read. And I had just kind of gotten, gone through a bunch of exercises for a year that kind of helped my eye exercises that helped me read better. And anyway, so he said, read some of your, my cases. And I started reading his cases and I was like, wow, there's all physics, math and science and chemistry in here. <laughs> I, I understand this stuff. And he goes, yeah, well, you know, that's why I do this kind of work. He goes, I was a chemistry major too. Oh, wow. And I said, what? I didn't know that. I thought he was just, he must have been political science and, and law degree. That's what everybody did, right? Sure. But that wasn't the case. He just never told me about it. So I had kind of coincidentally gotten my bachelor of science degree in the same area my father had without even knowing it. So anyway, at that point, I said, all right, I'm going to take the bar exam excuse me. I said, all right, at that point, I'm going to take the LSAT law SAT. And mm -hmm. if I, let me, I looked at Fordham and it said, it said the average score that you need to get in was, geez, now I can't even remember if it was 600 or 700. Uh, man, I think, it, oh, this is really bumming me out. I used to know this. <laughs> well, let's just say it was 600 because I don't want to overstate it. But so I think the average score to get into Fordham Law School was 600. So I said mm -hmm. on, on the LSAT. So I said, all right, if I get a 600, I'll go to law school. If I don't, I'll get a job in chemistry. So take the LSAT. And I remember because they mail it to your home, not your mm -hmm. school address. And I remember my mother called me up and said, you got the envelope. And I said, open it. And she did. And she said, you got a 600. <laughs> on the nose? Exactly on the nose. And I was oh, like, wow. okay, that's a sign. That's a sign. So I, I said, and I applied to Fordham and I got in and I, you know, I really liked it. I, I, I liked criminal law. I mean, that's, that was my, my favorite area of the law. I found every single case to be interesting and nuanced and, I really found like the Supreme Court had, you know, some amazing ways of twisting their logic to fit whatever <laughs> outcome they had in mind. And I realized uh, very early on that, you know, in law, there's no right or wrong answer. It's good and bad arguments. And you but you went into patents. Is that well, because the big money was in the patents at that time? Well, I went into patents. Only because when I started law school, I got I, I went at night so I could work to pay my mm -hmm. way through law school. And I got a job actually as a security guard at Fordham so that I could work there, do my studying and get paid for it. So I did that. And then I got recruited in the class from a patent firm. They were looking for <laughs> a scientist. And um, I know I had a geneticist and a biologist in my class, two female uh, classmates who were 
who were working for that law firm. And they came up to me one day and said, hey, we heard you're a chemist. We're looking for them. So I started working in the law firm, hated it. I thought, Mm. you know, it's a totally different environment than what I wanted to work in. So I left there and I went to the office of the corporation council, which is New York City's law department. And unlike any other city in the country where the city resides within a county, and then so the prosecutor for the city is a state district Mm -hmm. attorney, right? Or an attorney general in New York City. New York City encompasses five counties. They're all part of, they're all inside of New York City. So they actually have five county district attorney's offices, but they also have one corporation council, which covers all five divisions. So question on the county city thing. Like I'm in the Hampton Roads area, mm -hmm. Virginia Beach, Norfolk, et cetera. All of the counties and the cities incorporated into one entity, as in um, Norfolk is uh, Princess Anne County. Okay. Or, I'm sorry, Virginia Beach and Princess Anne County are the same. So the entire county is Virginia Beach. They're now, so okay. Is so, that similar or no? Well, except there's five counties in one city in New York. Right. And, and that's you have anomaly. a city overeating. Okay. A city covers five counties. Which so, is weird. Yeah, it is. So they also have a prosecution entity that covers all five counties as opposed to each individual district attorney's office. You have Manhattan DAs, you have Brooklyn DA, you have Queens, Staten Island, and the Bronx. Each one has their own district attorney's office. But New York City has its own prosecution office, and it's the office of the Corporation Council, the New York City Law Department. So we could prosecute. I worked for them. We could prosecute in all five boroughs. How does that work, though, in terms of uh, who's above what? I mean, it just seems weird. It's concurrent jurisdiction. Huh. Okay. So, yeah, they can. But what what I did was I prosecuted youthful offenders and I prosecuted sex crimes. So I worked on cases where kids were committing violent crimes. And in New York City, you could be prosecuted as an adult at 12 years of age for certain violent crimes. Wow. That seems a bit much. but (laughs) Well, it's a bit much, except when you start seeing gangs of kids at 12 years old running around with guns and knives and killing people. Then you start understanding why it happens. Anyway, that's what I did. Um, I worked my way through law school as a clerk there, then got a job there. It was the only job I applied out of law school. And luckily I got it. I didn't realize how ridiculous that was at the time. Uh, I did that for three years after graduation and, and then became an FBI agent. Which is interesting. Um, a lot of people would go to, um, I guess, the U.S. attorney's office or something, you know, taking that route. What made you say, no, I, I don't want to go to Department of Justice. I, I, I want to go to... Uh... Well, there's a couple things that happened. One is... I got a little frustrated at uh, some of the investigation that was done or not done. And I needed to, if I prosecuted a case, I needed to know everything I possibly could about it. So I would go out and do my own investigation at times to try to figure out what happened. And that's something that I love doing. When I was a kid, I read Sherlock Holmes and Hardy Boys and all those kind of investigative books. But I also always thought I'd like to be a detective. But, you know, I went to college and got a chemistry degree, went to law school. It seemed like going, going to the police department would kind of be a step backwards until I worked a case with the FBI and the agent at the end of the case handed me an application. And he, he, he basically said, well, FBI agents are nothing more than federal detectives. And that was it. That was that switched the switch in my brain for me. Are you kind of peripatetic in the sense that I mean, you're describing your current life now, and I'm wondering if you were bored, like FBI, there's action. You could go to this scene or that. I have to say that um, I don't think I was bored. I had 200 cases in my caseload. We were we were it was not unusual to have 10 cases scheduled for hearing or trial on any given day. Uh, Judge Judy was one of the judges that I tried cases in front of. She was, yeah, she was, uh, really? wow. <laughs> she was just a force of nature. It was before You're she Hollywood was Hollywood. Even then. Um, <laughs> but she, I, I always knew she'd go far. She was so, she was so smart and so good at the law and she controlled the hell out of that courtroom. 
Um, I remember one day, though, I was trying a case in front of her, and she said, excuse me, Mr. Clemente, off the record, is that a shark skin suit you're wearing? And I said, I said, uh, yeah. <laughs> she goes, where did you get it? She goes, all the other prosecutors come in in those blue pinstripe suits. You always have something interesting on. And I said, well, I kind of shop down on 8th Street in the thrift stores. That's what I like. I like those old suits. And she goes, well, thank you so much. You know, and that was it. Back to the trial. So, but another time, she, I was giving a summation on one trial. And I literally got escorted out of that courtroom by her court officers into her courtroom. And she said, Mr. Clemente, call your first witness. And I was like, your honor, I just, I don't care call your first witness. And I was like, well, I have to go down and get my case file and get my witnesses, see who's here. And so I went downstairs and sure enough, there was a cop there for the case. So I grabbed my file and says, come on, Judge Judy wants us to go now. Well, we called her Judge Scheinland back then. And and mm-hmm. as we're coming up the stairs, running up the stairs, I said to him, you've done this before, right? And he's like, no, this is my first time testifying. And... <laughs> Oh, my God. I was just like, oh, great. So anyway, he didn't do so well. I didn't get a chance to prep him, and he didn't do so well at all. And he literally was really the only witness in this case, and it was for criminal mischief. It was some kids who were who kicked out the windows of, of a subway train, you know, grabbed onto the bar on top and just kicked out the windows. Charming. But all I wanted to do was get him to say, so he was a transit cop. And what transit cops do is when the train pulls in, they get in the first or the last car and they walk the train. You know, the purpose of that is to see what condition it is and also to make their presence known and also to see who's there. Right. And I asked him over and over and over again, any way, which way I could figure out how, what he did when he first got trained, da, 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 da. He never said he walked the train. So he could never testify as to the condition of that window before so although he could look through the car and see the kid grab the pole and kick his way towards the window he couldn't say whether or not that window was intact beforehand and therefore we couldn't make the case for a criminal mischief and that was the first trial that i lost so i was i had had 23 trials before that that i won and i was getting so nervous i was gonna lose a really important case and it was piling up on my shoulders and so i was so relieved like when uh, when she dismissed dismissed that case i was so relieved <laughs> because i was like i'm i'm you know i'm protecting the city of new york that's my job as a prosecutor and well although this was a crime it wasn't the worst crime i had ever seen so i was all right it wasn't a killer so i was actually or, yeah. pretty relieved and it took all the pressure off then after that i i ran into judge judy uh, uh last year in uh in hollywood and and her and her husband who's also judge shineland and it was so great to catch up with them and you know reminisce about the the good old days back in corporation council new york city law department do you miss that at all i mean i I did have to ask because you seem to be very ingrained multi-generational new york especially the bronx and well now you're hollywood that, that has to be a bit of a culture. certainly shock, was. You know? uh, now I've been out here going on 10 years, and it was definitely a culture change because in New York, you're always running and gunning, and you, you, know, you get up early, you run all day hard. You could do anything you want 24 hours a day, every day of the week. Um, out in L.A., you have to drive everywhere. There's traffic. You can maybe make three meetings in a day because of the distance and the traffic. And it just, everybody's a little more calm and slower paced and things take a lot longer to get done. And so I really miss that part of it. But I have to tell you, especially with the way the winter goes on, on your side of the planet right now, boy, I'm glad I'm out here. Uh, it's just been, I mean, it's been raining a lot here, which is great because we needed the rain. but it's not minus 50 like it was in Chicago. It's not, you know, minus 70 <laughs> with the wind chill. You know, we don't have 10 feet of snow unless you want to go up to the mountains. And I think there's 50 feet of base on on Big Bear Mountain. 
And so there's plenty of skiing to be had and there'll be plenty of water wow. coming down the mountains into the reservoirs in the spring and summer. So I don't know. It's just uh, weather wise. I think this is a much better place to be. And I always love going back and visiting the city, though. I was going to say, so Jim Clemente has gone native. Well, <laughs> I have to I have to admit something, though. I was actually born in California. My parents were out here um, and Ooh. visiting relatives and got into a, a car wreck. And uh, I popped out two months early. So oh, wow. I'm actually a native Californian. Hmm. Okay. But I grew up in New York. <laughs> That's an interesting story. Wow. Yeah. Now, when you were with the FBI, are you a person who likes to control things from the um, onset? And by being an FBI agent, you could almost control the case even better. Like you can make sure that all the investigation was done properly. So therefore, Absolutely. when it's prosecuted, you can say, okay, our bases are covered this should go forward. Right. Well, basically I think that's the reputation I earned. And what's great about being an FBI agent is not only do you get to do the entire investigation, but then you get to sit with the prosecutors during the prosecution, during the entire trial, and then you get to testify. So you get to do all three of the aspects of it. And, you know, I prepped witnesses. I wrote questions out for the prosecutors. I, I helped with every aspect of the trial. And in certain cases, I was on the stand for a week or two weeks testifying, uh, very complicated white collar crimes or corruption crimes. And to me, I, I would dive in and I would work every day. I one, one case, it was a 19 month investigation. I worked every day for 19 months and then three and a half month long trial. And we got a huge conviction and it was the largest settlement, excuse me, it was the longest set, excuse me, it was the longest white collar sentence mm. in the Southern District of New York at the time. It was 14 and a half years for white collar crime. And generally they get off with three to five years, but this guy was super bad. His name was Menachem Prehar. And I took down his entire operation and we were able to convict him. We tried him for $480 million worth of bank and government fraud and he was a really bad dude. And so I was glad to get him off the street. He wasn't just sort of pushing paper and stealing people's money. He was doing a lot of other bad things too. So cases like that, you know, to me, you, you never have to worry about, ah, do I want to get up this morning? You know, do I want to go to work? You're like running and gunning all the time. So I did like for most of my career, I enjoyed the fact that I was working major cases. So that would be, there was maybe 200 in the entire hundred year history of the FBI. There's been maybe 200 major mm -hmm. cases. Right. They call them major case MCs. And in that time period, I was able to work a number of these major cases from being undercover on wall street for three years to some major political and public corruption cases and a number of independent counsel cases. So I was able to do that for quite a number of years, which made me really happy to be able to put everything into one case, as opposed to, like I said, when I was a prosecutor, I had 200 cases in my caseload. And then when I became a profiler, I had a lot more. So um, there was a period of time where I really, I really, I got a reputation for being a bulldog, just drilling down and biting into something and never letting it go till I got to the bottom of everything. Were you undercover on that major case you were just talking about? Uh, um, in the the one that uh, I was talking about, it was it was a commodities case. It was not the undercover investigation. It led to that case, though. It, I was undercover as a commodities broker, and that taught me the expertise in the area, which helped me develop that case later uh, from a real estate fraud to a major commodities corruption and bank fraud case. If you don't mind, I've never heard you um, talk about your undercover time, and I'd like to explore that a little bit. How, how does all that right. work? One thing you do also is listen to best case, worst case. So I think I did at least two episodes. It, it was a major case, and um, there was actually two entire FBI squads dedicated to this one case, and it was 
commodities corruption. And people who worked on the commodity on the floor of the commodities exchange are in a very unique position at that time. There were no electronic trades at that time. Everything was done by hand and eye movements and writing things down on cards and pads. And it's very easy to cover up some bad stuff that was going on there. So the only way to actually catch them was to go down there and actually work in the pits. I became uh, a clerk for a company and then worked my way up to becoming a broker um, and then worked for a major uh, privately owned oil company. Uh, Nobody that I worked with on the floor knew that I was an FBI agent and it was really stressful, extremely stressful. Right. That's the details that I'm interested in. You, I mean, you went in and actually applied for a job and, mm-hmm. and picked up the job, went through training with everybody else, et cetera. Is that how it works? I mean, I don't know the mechanics. So I applied for a job as a clerk, mm-hmm. got the job um, with the hope that I would eventually become a broker. The time it typically takes for somebody who goes in as a clerk and becomes a broker is six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 12 years. I did it in six months. Um, wow. I studied on my own. I told my boss on the floor that I wanted to take the test. He, you know, used some very colorful language back at me. <laughs> <laughs> Who did I think I was? I said, I've been studying. I want to take the test. And he was like, you know, he thought I would fail. So he's like, yeah, go ahead, go for it. And then he tried to actually torpedo me. I did pass the written test. Uh, got the second highest mark in the class. And then the other FBI agent that came in right after me, he got the highest mark in the class. Oh, wow. And, and then we had to do the practical, which is throwing us in the pit after hours and doing this mock trading. And they gave me a butterfly trade, which is the most difficult trade to do. You have to actually trade three different commodities at the same time. And I, I thought he was going to try to do that to screw me. Um, and he did in fact do that to me. So I'm really good with numbers. I watched all the boards. I was waiting for him to give me a trade like that. And I, I describe it a lot more detail and and best case, worst case, but you'll see I did it and he couldn't deny me the license. So I got my license, went through hell because there was so many ups and downs and twists and turns in that case. It's crazy, but it was the most stressful thing I've ever done in my life. Yeah. How did you deal with that i mean were you uh, under another name or were you just jumping oh yeah the broker oh no i was in deep cover man not only was i under another another name i had an entire life history behind it and uh that would also come into play as well so um it's just it's you know we do things right in the fbi and we had it backstopped and my my undercover persona backstopped and you're on 24 hours a day though you it's just 100% stress and if you have never been on the floor of the commodities exchange in New York it's not like the stock exchange which is fairly subdued the commodities exchange is mayhem There's some like 5000 people screaming it at the top of their lungs all day it's literally overwhelming and uh, if you want to see how messed up it is just go on YouTube and put in Robert Downey Jr commodities exchange and you'll see a video that he did he went on down probably doing some research on the floor hmm. and when he came outside he did this video where he went through every curse in the book and said these are the most disgusting and then he just went off <laughs> human beings i've ever met in my life you should check it out it's really funny and he spent like 20 minutes with them i was there for three years yeah i mean that had to be so I mean, you say stressful, but I mean, it's hard to imagine because you'd have to feel so isolated. Everything about your life is fake at that point because you can't just talk to your family. You have to cut off your old connections. They had to kind of wonder, were you okay? What's going on? Yeah. Um, how, how do you cope with that kind of thing? It's tough. It's like I said, it's um, it's a stressor that you cannot imagine. During the time I was working on the Commodities Exchange, the New York Times Magazine published a list of the most stressful jobs on the planet. Number one was air traffic controller. Number two was commodities broker. Number three was cop. I was number two (laughs) and three together. That trumps number one. So I was doing both of them at the same time. And that was a really, really difficult thing to do. But, you know, it was a challenge. And I do like to rise to the challenge. Right. Again, you have 50 things going on at any given point. That seems to fit your profile. Yeah, a little bit, I guess. Now, 
Are you unique in that? Because I'm hearing that you're a cop, you're a prosecutor or well, agent cop. I'm not trying to um, downgrade them. You seem to really have attacked crime at every angle that I can consider. Hmm. Is that deliberate? You know, like many people, you can't sit down and say, okay, I'm in high school this is what I'm going to do for my life. I guess some people actually plan it out and actually execute that. didn't happen that way for me. But one of the things my father told me pretty early on is try to make decisions in your life that open up opportunities that don't close doors, right? Because you don't want to narrow your field of expertise or experience. You want to get as broad-based an experience as you can so that you can apply it wherever the hell you want. And that was basically what he told me about law school because he said, it's never going to hurt you. You're going to learn how to think on your feet. You're going to learn how to argue. You're going to learn logic. You're going to be applying these rules to everyday life and whatever you do in work. So that was right. True. You know, it taught me how to think on my feet and, and it, it made me so much more adept at being able to respond in the moment to things that happen. And I think that was a really good skill for me when I became an FBI profiler, because you get, you're in the middle of one of the most stressful, horrific crimes that you can imagine. And you just get bombarded with all this information. And if you don't handle stress well, and if you can't think on your feet, you just get overwhelmed. But when you have that, when you've been under the gun, when you've had to perform in that way as a, as a prosecutor on your feet, dealing with whatever happens in the midst of a trial, you, you know, you learn to be calm in the storm and that's a really helpful skill. So I'm very happy that it sort of played itself out that way. And, and it also launched me into my third career. Yeah. Now on that, I, I discovered that I guess you actually were in the uh, debris during 9-11 and Mm -hmm. somehow well, you got bone, um, bone marrow cancer. Uh, well, I, I was, I was a first responder. Um, I had been in Quantico when the planes hit and I got in my car and I drove up to this back up to the city. Um, when I was undercover, I lived across the street from the trade center. My office was in the trade center. Trading floor was in the trade center. Um, and, uh, my father's office had been there, but he had retired. Thank God. Um, so I spent, five days there, um, on the pile digging, um, our, our, our filter masks got clogged within a couple hours with all the dust and debris and they just were worthless. So we didn't have anything to use after that. And we were breathing in a lot of stuff. There was stuff, just asbestos and fuel and plastics and everything you can imagine just burning, burning and burning for days. And, you know, we were trying to save people. So we, you know, we kept going, but 2004, I was diagnosed with lymphoma and, uh, started chemo right away. Cause I was stage four. And then wow. I, um, I didn't respond to the chemo. So they had to do a bone marrow transplant. So I was lucky. I was in a study at Johns Hopkins. I got a autologous stem cell bone marrow transplant, which means they use my own stem cells and it was a pretty new procedure. And and it worked. And I'm one of the lucky ones because I made it through. But, you know, my friend Andy Bingaman, who was just one of the strongest men I've ever known, you know, he didn't make it through the transplant. And, oh wow, you know, and, and just, I just found out yesterday, another, another agent who passed away um, from cancer after being, you know, working on 9-11. And so it's just, you know, we lost four agents in the last year uh, due to cancer from from 9-11. And it wasn't just the agents that were on the pile. The agents that went through all, painstakingly went through all the evidence out at the Fresh Kills landfill where they bought all the debris from the city and they sifted through everything to try to find DNA from from all the victims so they can identify all the victims and, and belongings and everything. They, they, I was, I was at 
the World Trade Center for five days and then three weeks at the Pentagon because what happened at the Pentagon was one of the contractors was selling the classified safes for junk metal with all the classified documents in it. So they fired all the contractors and FBI agents did all the demolition there. So I ran a skid steer and was picking up these safes with this skid steer. And um, anyway, I was there for three weeks and it was, it was, that was a horrific scene as well, but there was about a million tons of debris there. And everybody there thought that was massive. And I told them there's a thousand times this in New York city. And they just didn't, couldn't appreciate that. And it turns out there was 1.2 billion tons of debris that was taken out of there. 1.2 billion tons. Think about it. It's 1,200 times what was taken out of the Pentagon. Anywhere else on the planet, that would have been an entire city in ruins. In other words, people don't understand. They think it's, oh, well, it's a building came down or two towers came down, but it wasn't. It's a massive complex, both above ground and below ground. And it was all just, just destroyed. And it was, yeah, it was the, yeah, it was the worst. Wow. Did that, did that precipitate your retiring from the FBI? Yeah. I mean, I wanted to make it to five years so that I could retire normally and not, uh, go out on disability. Um, I, it was really important to not be a victim, you know, right. and, and so I, I retired on the first day of eligibility. And then my doctor said I should try to do something less stressful. Um, <laughs> and, uh, how's that work? So <laughs> it's good. It's really good. I mean, I don't get stressed out like, like, typical Hollywood people do about things here because I know, you know, real people aren't dying. You know, this is all just, you know, you could touch a couple of T's, change a few things and it's all fixed. So it's not that bad. There are certain deadlines and all that kind of stuff that are, that are difficult, and stressful, but it's nowhere near what the real world stuff is. And then I, you know, I get to do a whole bunch of different things and that's, that's been fun. So I feel really really lucky to be able to do this. How did you initially get connected with criminal minds? I believe you were an expert witness on some cases like uh, Michael Jackson and other things. Is that, is that how you sort of, yeah, no, that's not. I mean, Mandy Patinkin, who was going to be the star of criminal minds, wanted to come out and find a profiler to base his character on because he, you know, he wanted some inspiration before he agreed to do the show. And he was, touring around with with my buddy Chris Whitcomb and Chris called me up and said Jim uh there's this actor and you know he's trying to find somebody to talk to about this and he's talked to a bunch of people here but he said isn't there anybody in the FBI with a personality (laughs) and and so Chris called me and I was actually recovering from the bone marrow transplant which is probably why I was in town and and so we met and we hit it off and I told him stories he actually asked me Tell me about your best case and your worst case. Ah, uh, I know, and that's really generally. where that podcast, yeah, and that's really where that the idea for the podcast came from. So I have to thank you, Mandy Patinkin. Thank you. But I said I'm not going to tell you my worst case. It's not for entertainment purposes. But I'll tell you my mm-hmm. best case. And I told them the story of a six year old boy who was abducted, and um, and and you should again listen to best case, worst case because. Yeah. That's one of the ones I talk about, and and it's also an episode of Criminal Minds called What Fresh Hell that Mandy did an amazing job bringing to life. So we we hit it off. He, he based his character on me. Uh, he brought me out there to meet the writers. I started telling them stories, and they became episodes. And so I became the tech advisor, and um, I did it for free for the first five years while I was still hmm. a bureau agent. And, uh, but I became a a freelance writer in season two. I wrote Lessons Learned, which was my first episode of Criminal Minds. It did pretty damn well. And, and then I did a couple more while I was still in the bureau. And then when I retired, I came on that full time as a writer. That's kind of cool that you got to, um, learn as you went writing for television. I mean, that's a, that's something people study to do. Yeah. I mean, and the thing is, and and not to take anything away from the people who study to do that, it's just that 
yeah, you can study to be a writer, um, but you have to live it to be an FBI agent. You have to actually do a hell of a lot of stuff to get there. It's very competitive to get into the FBI. And then then your career in the FBI can be varied. Uh, And I was fortunate enough to make it into the behavioral analysis unit, which is a very small group of people, 25 people out of 14,000 agents. So, you know, there's very, very high competition to get in there. And I was lucky enough to do it. And it was an honor and very important that, you know, work that we did that helped save lives and put people who are very, very, very bad away so that they couldn't hurt other people. Now, you're kind of immersed in darkness, really. Do you do anything to get away from it? I mean, if you think about your whole career, you had the really horrible darkness that's real, and then now you emulate it on television, but... Yeah, well, I mean, if you look at another episode that I wrote with Janine Sherman Bourgeois, it was called Restoration. And what I did during my FBI career was buy old, generally brick houses, 100-year-old, and restore them. Not not renovate them, restore them. Hmm. Try to rebuild them the way they were. You know, redo the plaster and the flooring and, you know, upgrade them, obviously, so that they had modern conveniences. But it was the sort of breaking down and the rebuilding and then stepping back at the end and being able to look at it and say, you know, I bought this back to its original beauty. Um, it was really a sense of accomplishment and a positive thing. So that's what I did, you know, sort of swinging a sledgehammer and then fixing things that, that to me, that was, that was a great outlet. And now my outlet is creative. It's writing. And what I didn't know was that 10 months of the day after I retired from the FBI, I would have a massive heart attack and, and, and flatline three times. And literally the fact that I'm sitting here talking to you almost nine years later is really unbelievable. But for the fact that my brother happened by and said, what are you doing here? You know, and, and I just said, I didn't feel good. He said, get in the car. He drove me six blocks to an ER. I get, get out. I walk in. I said, I need a stretcher and I hit the floor and I was dead. So, uh, they got me back and the doctor, you know, and the nurses were just amazing. And so a week later I, I I threw a little pizza party for the nurses at the ER (laughs) and I, I took the doctor to lunch and, and he said, you know, it's, it's amazing sitting here talking to you. And I said, yeah, I feel the same way. And he said, you don't understand. Uh, I could have called you dead at 28 minutes. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, when we couldn't get you back into rhythm, we couldn't get your heart going for 28 minutes. Um, Generally, they say the time of death is. He said, but you fought me so much at the beginning that I I just felt like I should keep working on you. And I said, well, why was I fighting you? And he said, well, when I was trying to intubate you. And I said, that makes sense because when when I had cancer i had a tumor in my neck and it kind of crushed my trachea so instead of looking like around like that it looks kind of like a crescent moon so if you were trying to intubate me you were cutting into my throat and that's probably why i was fighting you and he said well then cancer saved your life (laughs) when it didn't take you i guess it did wow yeah so pretty crazy um so you know i thank the universe for let me stay for a little while longer, you know, and for every day that I have. So that's probably why I do so much because I don't want to waste any time. Well, and you definitely aren't. And to wrap it up, I'd like to talk about your two podcasts because this is a podcast and you know, want to share the community. What inspired you? Because, I mean, you have so many things going on right now and you're doing filming. Why did you start Real Crime Profile? Real Crime Profile really came out of my work with Bob Ruff. Bob Ruff of Truth and Justice podcast had asked me to get involved um, with profiling some of the cases he was working. He was doing a lot of crowdsourced investigations for false convictions. And Bob is a, well, force of nature. And so he told me after I'd been on a show a few times that when he interviews me, that uh, usually his listenership doubles. Oh, and wow. and he said, um, you should do your own podcast. And I said, really? I don't even know how to do it. And he started telling me about how to do it. And 
And then a little while later, Lisa Zambetti came up to me and said, oh, I want to talk to you about making a murderer. I'm really interested in what you think about that. Mm-hmm. And so I put two and two together and I said, all right, I um, called up Laura Richards and said, you know, why don't we do a podcast together and we'll talk about what's really going on behind the scenes of these cases. And what I want to do and what I want to do is see if we can make a podcast that's about crime, but it's victim centric so that we tell the stories from the victims perspectives, give them back their voice and bring justice for those victims who a lot of times, you know, like people will name the case after the bad guy. And we try right. to do the opposite. Nicole Brown Simpson, Ron Goldman, not OJ Simpson case, that kind of stuff. And and so I think that's why so many people responded so well to that podcast. But then I I found, you know, and, and we definitely have our our listenership and our niche cut out with real crime profile. And I think we've done some amazing things. A lot of listeners have contacted us about how we've helped them understand the situation they, they were in or get out of a bad situation. And so we're really happy and proud of what we've been able to do with that. But another thing that I found was that there's a, a huge misunderstanding because of some horrible really negative things that have happened with cops and the public that people don't understand what cops are really all about. And yes, there are some bad ones, but there are 500,000 cops in the United States of America. There's 17,000 different police agencies. And, And it's really horrible when people think that because some cops do bad things, that all cops are bad people, when the vast majority of cops are actually there to help people, to save lives. And that's what they do every single day. They risk their life, their actual life they're risking to actually protect people. So we wanted to give sort of an opportunity for cops and prosecutors and other people in the criminal law area, an opportunity to tell people, to bring people behind police lines and find out what it's really like to be a cop and and the best cases and the worst cases of their careers. And there's a whole bunch of episodes that we have up that can bring you through a very wide variety of cases that and a wide variety of law enforcement officials and learn from them and figure out a little bit better what it's actually like to be a police officer in this world, in this environment. And we're really proud of that show. It's it's really, I think, made a difference for a lot of people. And a lot of our listeners reach out to us and say they had no idea what cops go through. And cops are real people, men and women. And like I said, the vast majority of them, the vast majority are dedicated public officials who just want to help people. That's why they're doing the job. How do you feel about the uh, podcast format versus the um, television format? I love it. I love the podcast format. I think the podcast format gives us so much more room for creativity and imagination. Um, I also, I would like to get into podcasting drama as well. And our first sort of foray into that was Evil Has a Name, which is an audible audio series. So it's an original audio series on Audible, and it's about the Golden State Killer, but it's about the behind the scenes. It's sort of a mix of a podcast and, you know, a book, and and it is a in-depth look at what happened behind the scenes in the Golden State Killer case, both on the side of the police officers who investigated it and the victims who suffered from the offender. So I really think it engages your imagination uh, in a way that that TV and movies sort of every day use less and less of your imagination because the the, the CGI and the the effects <laughs> just they they give you everything they give you everything and I think there's a certain part of your brain that really connects with the old radio dramas and I think that's why they're so popular I think that's why podcasts have really blown up in the last five years and I think there could going to continue to be a very important part of American culture and worldwide culture because they do engage people's imagination and they allow you to make better use of your time, more efficient use of your time. You can actually get into a different world while you're traveling to work or working out or or just relaxing on a Saturday afternoon. So 
I think it's a wonderful thing. And I, I really hope that people embrace your podcast and and the podcast that, that I've been fortunate enough to do. I also host Locked Up Abroad, which is based on the Nat Geo series, Locked Up Abroad. And it's uh, all those, all my podcasts are on, on Wondery um, and, and Stitcher and, and iTunes. So, or Apple Apple Podcasts, I think they call it now, right? <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. And they get really, really pissy if you don't call it that. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a perfect point to wrap up on. Thank you so much for coming on. I know you're just slammed. Yeah, it's all right. No, I appreciate you asking me. And, you know, I hope you have a lot of success with this. And I hope that people understand a little better what it's like, you know, when, you know, when you tried to get into a career in law enforcement, there can be a lot of real roadblocks and it's difficult. And there are a lot of pitfalls and I was fortunate enough to survive mine. And now I'm able to use it to educate people literally around the world in what I learned about criminal behavior, about human behavior, about you know pitfalls and danger signs and and how to protect yourself and how to protect your kids. So those are my goals now. And um, again, really fortunate to be able to have a platform to educate while I'm entertaining some people. You're definitely doing that. Thanks. Hey there. Thanks so much for listening. If you'd like to learn more, please check out unstructuredpod.com. There you can find all the episodes, free subscription information, and most of the players and even how to contact me. I would love to hear from you. You can even set up a 15-minute call with me about the show or anything you like. Again, it's at unstructuredpod.com, and I hope to hear from you. Now, in the spirit of sharing, here are other shows you may want to consider checking out. Thanks again. Hi, I'm Tyson Franklin, the host of It's No Secret with Dr. T, which is a small business and marketing podcast. Each week, I interview business leaders who openly share the secrets to the massive success. It's No Secret with Dr. T will educate, entertain, and inspire you. Check it out. You'll find it wherever you listen to podcasts, or you can go to my website, TysonFranklin.com. I did not grow up with very much money. Money's energy. Money is something that, that really scares me. You had about 60 grand in debt. Money isn't the answer. Somebody should just give me a lot of money. My dream was to be the WWE wrestler, but you realize that your dreams change over the years. Money's a tool. It's a key to a gate. And at the other side of the gate is the things that you really want to do with your life. It's the things that matter most to you. It's pursuing those values that make you ultimately happy. Listen to Inspired Money at inspiredmoney.fm.